few weeks back, I got this push alert on my phone. It said the district attorney in Manhattan, Cy Vance, had decided to stop prosecuting prostitution. I also got the alert. I knew it was coming. I called up Melissa Jira Grant because I wanted to know what that alert really meant. From what I could tell, the DA planned to continue bringing charges against people buying sex, just not those selling it. This was widely reported as a victory for sex workers, a change that would keep people safer. But Melissa, who's covered sex work activism for more than 15 years, she saw this change a little differently. What's surprising, though, about about this policy is that it's coming, you know, out of the Manhattan DA's office, which has historically um, been incredibly anti-sex work. In a way, it's not that much of a departure, but the fact that they wanted people to, like, celebrate him for it is is really worth drawing some attention to. You know, he Hmm. wants credit for having done something good for sex workers. What Melissa's talking about here is a shifting power dynamic. It's actually pretty subtle until you know the history. In the past, doing something good for sex workers has meant finding new ways to control their behavior. Like a few years back, Melissa was covering a diversion program some Brooklyn prosecutors had set up. It was a way for sex workers to avoid prison time, but they were still getting arrested, still going to court. And so I was sitting on the bench outside the courtroom with a woman who was about to go in and have her case heard. And she was telling me about, you know, the arrest that she was there for, She had been arrested so many other times before that the officer who was arresting her in this case knew who she was, recognized her, followed her out of a bodega, according to her, and threw her against his car at seven in the morning. Huh. And and she said, I was just out getting, like, juice for my kids, you know? But, like, the mindset is, like, well, once arrested, always arrested, right? Once a sex worker, always a sex worker. And so, you know, she was pissed, like— Telling me what happened to her, you know, it was clear that she felt violated and angry. And and yet, you know, three minutes later, when she had to go in in front of the judge, it's like her entire demeanor shifted and the judge is asking her pretty offensive questions of like, we hope that you're going to choose a different path. And all I could think was like, choose a different path. Like this officer is the reason she's here, right? Uh-huh. It has nothing to do with her and her decisions. Well, this decision by Cy Vance, will it prevent incidents like that from happening? I don't think so. Yeah, in a way, what they're doing is is just punting this. And, you know, the reality is, like, the prosecutor's office doesn't have the power to tell the police to stop making these arrests. Today on the show, New York is not the only place rethinking sex work. But can the legal system deliver the security these workers need? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you want to appreciate just how far New York's come with these new rules around sex work, it helps to go back a little bit. In 2016, 
Melissa Jira Grant reported a story about a woman named Sarah Marchando. Sarah lived in Brooklyn. She's a mother, also a sex worker. And like that woman Melissa met in court that one time, Sarah kept getting arrested, even when she wasn't breaking the law. Most often, she was being arrested under this one particular statute, a state law that criminalized loitering with the intent to commit prostitution. Basically, if police saw you standing around and thought you looked like a sex worker, they could arrest you. Yeah, the most extraordinary arrest that Sarah told me about was one time when she was actually on a public city bus and the police essentially pulled the bus over to arrest her off the bus. Um, and in, in the process, you know, physically grabbed her. And, you know, when she was arrested, you know, women officers, um, you know, looked in her bra and looked in her underwear and it made her feel really humiliated. I mean, the entire process is kind of public humiliation. What was the reasoning? Right. Like, how are you committing loitering for prostitution on a moving bus? <laughs> I mean, like, what, what is the rationale there? And like, the only thing that Sarah could come up with, and I think this is accurate from all the other women I've talked to who've been in the same situation, um, and there are hundreds of them, is that once police make an arrest and, you know, regard somebody as sometimes what they'll even call a known prostitute, that person is, you know, in their eyes, that's who they always are. And, you know, when police also have, you know, to make a certain number of arrests, um, they're just going to go back for the people that they can most easily arrest. And in New York City, you know, that is women of color, that is women in low-income communities, that is going to be trans women and immigrant women. And, you know, to be very, very clear, like, they're not arresting all sex workers in New York all the time. They're arresting those particular women who may not even be doing sex work, but may have at one point. So they're not going to, like, a fancy hotel. No, not typically. I mean, the majority of arrests that if you go sit in one of those courtrooms or, you know, if you did before COVID, um, they're going to be people who are arrested either on the street or in venues like massage parlors. You make this interesting comparison in your reporting to arrests like what happened to Sarah and stop and frisk. And you made that comparison because a lot of times women like Sarah were being arrested because of where they were, which is areas of high prostitution, I guess, and because of how they looked. And you have you have these examples from police reports that you read them and, and you just can't help but think, like, how did we get here? Like, the, the reasoning behind arresting women was because they were wearing tight black leggings or they were wearing tight jeans and a tank top showing their cleavage, which, you know, you could be anywhere in New York wearing those kinds of clothes. Right. You could be at a, you know, bachelorette party. You're probably not getting arrested. My favorite of all of the the garments that were called out on those um, affidavits signed by officers was a pea coat and jeans. <laughs> Which sounds like to... you're going to college. Yeah, like I'm I'm pretty sure that arrest did not happen or near NYU. But it is it is very clear to me, both from the time that I've spent reporting in courts and the time that I've spent talking to advocates, I think at the time I was doing that story, something like 90 plus percent of the people arrested for loitering for prostitution in Brooklyn were black. Hmm. So it is it is incredibly targeted in the way that stop and frisk was targeted. Um, and it 
it is also targeting the same communities. So we did some data reporting for that piece as well. And one of the things that we found is that there are really concentrated arrests that the NYPD were making at the time. Um, and they're still making arrests in these communities, but they've gone down, I think, over public pressure. Um, but at the time, they were making about two to 3,000 um, prostitution-related arrests a year, mostly concentrated in five com- five communities that were largely low-income and largely um, black and brown communities. So it's not that they were making arrests in areas known for prostitution. It's they were making arrests in the same communities where they're making arrests. And then those communities, in their eyes, become known for prostitution Hmm. because that's where they continue to make the arrests. Sounds like a chicken and an egg problem. Exactly. And then they continue to arrest the same people and, you know, on and on. So it's it's the self-fulfilling standard for the NYPD. Since Melissa and Sarah first met, In 2016, the sex workers' rights movement in New York has made some pretty significant strides. That loitering law was repealed in February of this year. And other cities, like Baltimore and Philadelphia, they've started to loosen the rules around sex work, too. Melissa says this is all the result of decades of activism, boosted by a society-wide rethink of the role of police. I think part of it is, you know, the culture has shifted quite a bit. Um, Not necessarily the culture around sex work, but the culture around policing. You know, I think you can really draw a line in the sand in 2014 with the murder of Mike Brown and with the Black Lives Matter movement, with all of the sort of like re-questioning of what it means to, to look to police for public safety and more and more people questioning the role of police um, in our lives. And I think When you come to sex work with that perspective, right, when you're asking not about the behavior of sex workers, but you're asking about the behavior of police, it's a very different framework. You know, you're you're now you don't necessarily have to, you know, come to any sort of personal conclusions about how you feel about the existence of sex work. Now the people whose behavior are being asked to consider is the police and like when you look at what police do to sex workers, when you look at the harassment, if not the violence, and the ways that these arrests disorder people's lives and expose them to harm, I don't think it can be justified. And so now you have like even a much bigger constituency of people. It's not just sex workers pushing for this, right? It's going to be groups who are you know pushing for all different kinds of reforms to policing, including people who are pushing for the um, the abolition of policing. And you have groups who you know typically may have never done anything around sex workers' rights, um, but are 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 going to be part of this broader effort because they see the, the the damage the policing does in their communities. So the sex workers had allies in a way that they maybe didn't before. Yeah, and, and and allies who at the time I think were also able to be pretty successful in sort of moving the conversation around policing. So that, you know, now we have after last summer, like pretty mainstream conversations about defunding the police. And so then you know, Decrim New York is also out at the same time, actually a little bit before that, when one of their primary demands is to defund the vice unit of the NYPD. And so you're seeing this alignment, I think, between the sex worker rights movement and this this broader movement against policing. The thing about this most recent decision by New York District Attorney Cy Vance to stop prosecuting sex work is that Melissa doesn't think it's going to change anything about police behavior. Not right away. And she worries that continuing to prosecute people who buy sex is going to double down on harmful stereotypes. As long as the NYPD are allowed to make prostitution arrests, the impact on people's day-to-day lives is not that great. Um, And if anything, the rhetoric of, you know, treating sex workers as as victims who should not be arrested and treating their customers as, 
you know, essentially sex offenders who we have to go after with the full force of the law, which is is the rhetoric behind this and rhetoric that Cy Vance has also um, shared, it that itself is also very damaging to send this message that anybody involved in sex work by necessity is a victim that we need to rescue and the way that we're going to rescue them is by arresting their source of income um, without providing them any kind of alternative, which is a dead-end street. Um, it just keeps the same cycle continuing, but also... I think it creates this social perception that sex workers are victims, right? That sex workers can't organize, that sex workers don't have community, that sex workers can't influence public policy, like all of the things that actually are happening. Um, and so it's it's incredibly dangerous, I think, to have those ideas spreading when you're at the same time as, as sex workers are really, you know, getting the support of, of legislators in their communities at large. When we come back, we'll talk about the policies that many sex workers actually want Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
Melissa says there are a few different ways governments have decided to treat sex work around the world. The first, full criminalization, is basically what we've got here in the U.S., for the most part. Then there's partial criminalization, where sex work itself is not illegal, but everything around it, being a customer or providing a location for sex work, that is illegal. It's essentially what New York has just put into place. And... The third sort of policy framework would be decriminalization, which we see in New Zealand and a few states in Australia. And what decriminalization does is essentially get, you know, criminal laws out of sex workers' lives when it comes to their work. Sex workers still can and do um, bring cases, you know, around sexual harassment, sexual violence, wage theft. Um, Not being regarded as criminals themselves mean they can actually use the law to protect themselves in the ways they need to protect themselves, rather than saying, you know, by arresting you or arresting your customers, we're providing you with protection, which actually does, and it just, you know, exposes people to violence. Decriminalization, Melissa says, is largely preferred by sex workers. That's because if you look at places that have put in place that partial criminalization framework, you can see problems right away, especially when it comes to policing. So in one of the countries where they do have this um, this partial criminalization model where theoretically sex workers are not criminalized but still are in many ways is Norway. And Amnesty International did um, research in four different countries looking at their, their prostitution laws. And in Norway, they found, I think, some of the most stunning human rights abuses that, you know, I have heard around sex work in the, the 15, 20 years that I've been looking at this. So police there, you know, in this model where supposedly they weren't criminalizing the workers, they created something called Operation Homeless, hmm. um, where what they were doing was documenting where they believed sex workers were doing work based on surveillance, including online surveillance, and then harassing their landlords and saying, if you don't evict this person, um, we're going to come after you. Who does that benefit? I mean, who does it benefit? Nobody, right? I mean, it, it benefits sort of this cultural ideal that like sex work is dirty and we should exclude sex workers. Um, you know, we should exclude sex work from even happening. Like, I'm sure that the the, the public policy experts in Sweden, who, or Norway rather, who were pushing this, were doing it with rhetoric that was all about protecting women and respecting women and giving women alternatives. But the reality is to make somebody homeless is to actually make them more at risk. It's to make them more economically um, vulnerable. It's 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 absolutely cruel. When this was exposed, how did the police respond? Was there some kind of turnabout? So theoretically, Operation Homeless doesn't exist anymore, but the reality is they've just pivoted. And the kinds of anti-prostitution policing that Amnesty saw after the like apparent end of Operation Homeless was largely targeting migrant women. Um, and in, in Norway, that was largely African migrant women. So they would, you know, stop people on the street, harass them to get them to turn over their papers. If they weren't documented, they would threaten them with deportation. Um, they were still penalized. They were still regarded as um, people who had to be corrected or excluded or deported even. So there's no way to sort of like have police in sex workers' lives and not send that message, not just to sex workers, but to the community at large. So like these people are a problem and and we are the solution to the problem. The fact that those officers were harassing migrant women, it, it makes clear to me that I think there's 
this issue when we talk about sex work, which is it often gets conflated with sex trafficking. And I wonder if you think it's worth us just taking a moment to tease those two ideas apart, like what the difference is and and why we tend to see them as the same thing when they're not necessarily. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a way that any migrant sex worker is regarded as, as trafficked because of these kinds of myths and assumptions and, and because of the racialized way that we talk about sex trafficking and sex work, right? Like I'm thinking about Atlanta just a month ago um, and the ways that the women who worked in the massage businesses in Atlanta that were, were targeted by a mass shooter, um, the people had all kinds of assumptions of who they were and why they were there and the conditions under which they were doing their work. And, and the reality is that Asian migrant sex workers are some of the most vulnerable and targeted sex workers in the community. Um, they are also organizing for their own rights. Groups like, you know, Red Canary Song, who started in New York after an uh, Asian migrant sex worker named Yang Song was killed in an NYPD raid. Um, you know, their analysis of this, and I think it's really important to share and also to credit this to them, is that they are the ones who are best positioned to intervene when people are being exploited and are vulnerable. They are the ones that sex workers who are trafficked or are having their wages stolen or having their passports confiscated or treated in all of these other um, abusive ways, they have that trust, right? They're already in the community. They're already working with them. They're already seeing what's going on. And the reality is the idea of people being trafficked is being used as justification to continue to send police in. It is, there is this tension though, right? Because sex trafficking is real. I've read that when sex work is legalized, there can be an increase in sex trafficking as people rush in to kind of fill the demand that exists when there's a legalized prostitution situation. So... I wonder if for you it raises any questions of what the right approach is and whether sex workers themselves have an answer to that. I mean, whether or not that that's true, that legalization leads to any sort of increase in human trafficking, which I don't think there's any way of knowing because there's very few studies that actually sort of provide a baseline as an alternative, right? Well, when things were criminal, they were this way and they were legal this way. But I can say from the United States, where prostitution is fully criminalized, human trafficking actually still exists. Sex trafficking exists. You know, the reason that sex trafficking is even regarded as, as something different from, from human trafficking, from labor trafficking, um, is because sex work isn't considered work. And so under our laws, it's, it's created as this sort of separate category and it's treated very differently by police. So just to give you an example, like of other industries where we see trafficking, you know, whether that's in agricultural work or domestic workers, you know, what we don't do is send police into homes on the Upper West Side to ensure that the domestic workers aren't being trafficked. Hmm. But we are absolutely sending police into immigrant communities in Flushing, to, into massage businesses. You know, they're not going to nail salons. They're not going to hair salons. They're not going to other kinds of informal labor where people are incredibly vulnerable to trafficking because they don't have access to labor rights. I mean, that's what it comes down to. When you, when you have a group of workers who are undocumented, who otherwise you know, don't have the capacity to organize for themselves because their industry isn't protected under labor law, or even if they are, um, you know, don't necessarily have the resources to challenge their employers, 
that creates an environment that's rife for abuse. And I don't think there's any situation in which police can correct that. It's a much deeper problem. Um, but it's really easy to throw police at the problem and, and act as if it's, it's been solved. But, you know, for the last 20 years, we've been throwing police at the issue of human trafficking in the United States. Yeah. And there's no evidence that it's actually reduced anything. Yeah, it's just one of these complicated things, though, where I don't think anyone would say that the way women are treated at nail salons where they're trafficked for that kind of work is good. You know, it's not like no, it, that's it's, an ideal. It's not good. It's not good. But, you know, we're saying, okay, well, what, what would be the answer there? Is police the answer? Or is giving people a voice in their workplaces? Is listening and taking labor, labor abuse complaints seriously? You know, is it giving people some kind of amnesty? So even if they're undocumented and they report abuses in their workplace, that they're not going to get deported over it. Right. There's lots of different solutions that have nothing to do with looking to the police, which particularly in immigrant communities can be a source of violence. Hmm. So I've seen the sex worker activist community responding online to this latest decision by the district attorney in Manhattan. And it's been interesting because there's been some acknowledgement that, okay, this is a first step towards a better situation for sex workers. But I wonder if you see it that way, if this is a first step or if it's a first step in the right or wrong direction. And I'm not sure. My initial response to it, and I, I still am very much in this place, which is like, yes, and. Yes, do that and stop the arrests. Um, it's only a step backwards if it stops here. Right. It's only if it's if it's like a fig leaf for for this prosecutor's office and others who may follow in their footsteps to see, see sex workers, we listened to you. We're not going to prosecute you anymore. Um, in a way, I think it could almost be meant to sort of like slow down people's critiques and slow down their momentum and slow down their demands. I don't see any evidence that that's what's happening in New York. Like, I, I don't think anybody who's involved in these campaigns for decriminalization and to end the uh, police harassment and abuse of sex workers look at this and say, well, that's it. You know, we won that one. Um, their target isn't necessarily the prosecutor's office. Their target is the police. And, and they're continuing to be focused on that. So... If anything, it's an opportunity, I think, to talk about like how this actually works in real life and to say, like, well, sure, the prosecutor does have a lot of power, um, but the reality is the NYPD right now have more power over sex workers' lives. And so if you want to stop them from being criminalized, you have to look at the police. Melissa Jira Grant, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Melissa Jira Grant is a staff writer at The New Republic. She's also the author of Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Delshad, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, and Davis Land. We're led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, 
and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.